Hello and welcome to Why Do We Do That, a psychology podcast that deconstructs human behavior from the perspectives of social scientists, psychologists, and others that use applied psychology in their work. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Moyer. In this episode, I sit down with Dr. Justin Puder. Justin earned his PhD in psychology from Auburn University. He is a licensed psychologist who spent seven years in a university counseling setting and now has his own private practice based in South Florida. He's also an instructor at Florida Atlantic University where he teaches a course on mindfulness-based stress reduction. Justin is also very active on Instagram and TikTok where he uh, produces videos that cover a wide range of topics in mental health. You can find him at a modern therapist on both Instagram and TikTok. Justin and I had a long chat about mental health and college students, specifically the most common mental health issues he encounters, uh, the types of personal experiences he hears about, and, and how that can impact a, a student's well-being. Uh, and we also discuss some of the goals and techniques of his therapeutic process, uh, including a deeper dive into one specific practice, mindfulness-based stress reduction. Uh, unfortunately, this uh, episode was recorded prior to the pandemic, so we weren't able to get into the specific social isolation issues that have been uh, plaguing people this past year. Uh, however, many of the insights we discuss can apply to, uh, to mental health, uh, pandemic or not. So I really hope you enjoy it. All right, we're here with Justin Puder. How are you, my friend? I'm doing great, man. Thanks for having me. Great. Um, so most of your counseling experience uh, has been with college-age students. So roughly seven years you've been, you've been working in a university environment. Yeah. Um, let's just start off just talking about the top three issues that you, that you tend to receive uh, with your clients. Yeah, the, t the top three for college-age students generally are anxiety, depression, and relationship issues. Um, normally how that presents is isolation, uh, feelings of adjusting to a new environment and having to start over making friends. Cause a lot of people are coming to college and again, transitioning from the social and peer groups that they knew and having to start all over again. Okay. So now like when I think, when I think of a, of a college student who is, is, having anxiety to the point of reaching out to a professional. I think I, my mind immediately goes to, okay, what was this, what was this student's environment like growing up? So let's talk a little bit about some of the, some of the causes of, 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 of bad anxiety. Is, is it just a linear path between kind of overprotective parents and uh, and and going through adolescence having a lot of a lot of anxiety or is it or is it a little bit more complicated than that do you think yeah I, I definitely think it's more complicated um, parents have a lot to do with it uh, the upbringing the environment they grew up with um, their biology that they've just been handed right that they didn't choose from their parents um, there's a lot of things but it doesn't always have to have, especially in college students, it can start as they're starting in college because 
it's a major transition. When you think about what it's like growing up in a town, again, knowing the same people for many, many years, seeing the same faces, and then coming to a place and, whoa, how many people here do I actually know? That adjustment itself can cause significant anxiety. Yeah, I am. I uh, am about to start teaching uh, a, a freshman population, so um, I'm anticipating, uh, you know, a certain amount of of transitional anxiety. Yeah. Um, so, uh, is there a, a, what 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 type of of uh, tactics do you do you like to incorporate? when you're uh, helping students with these uh, transitional periods? Yeah, I'm a big person. I like to start with their own kind of toolkit and empower them to build from what they already know. And so what that usually looks like is asking these kind of broad questions of like, how have you gotten connected before? How have you made friends before? especially when a lot of the freshmen who come into the counseling center early on, that's their chief complaint. I feel anxious here. I don't know anyone. Uh, The interesting thing about that that we'll see is a lot of them have never thought about how do I actually make friends? How do I become known to other people? Because they've just known these people in their town, their high school for so many years, they didn't necessarily have to branch out. So for some of them, this will be the first time they think about me, how do I reach out and get to be known by other people, which is such a cool thing to explore with somebody. Now, okay, so in these in these conversations, mm-hmm. I imagine that you that that you probably get a good sense of 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 their base level of social skills. Now, um, I if if you just kind of look at where our culture's at in terms of, um, let's just say the, the social skills or the conversational skills of, of, of people within the age of, I don't know, let's say 16 to 23 or something like that. Yeah. Um, it, it looks a little bit different from prior generations. There's a lot more socialization uh, happening in digital worlds, right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're making, you know, you're, you're, you're making and keeping friends through social media, through your computer, versus making and keeping friends face to face. Do you feel that that is changing the, the base level of social skills that, that these students have when, when they're trying to make friends uh, in a new environment? I, I think it has to have an impact for sure. You know, being a young therapist, I don't have any like longitudinal experience. It'd be neat to ask somebody who's been in the field a long time. Like, you know, you've been working with teens for X number of years. Have you noticed a change? But for me in talking with with students, with college students, it is different. Like they'll feel much more comfortable, again, hashing something out through text. And they'll be telling me a story of like, I had a fight with my roommate. And it will take me about 10 minutes to realize, oh, everything you're saying, you didn't actually talk to your roommate face to face. This was through text. And knowing what we know about, you know, social connection and reading, you know, uh, nonverbals and all these things, I have a lot of concerns about that of, 
okay, how do we transition from using technology as sort of a safe space and easy way to connect quickly to when we want to have meaningful connection and conversation, ultimately it has to be face-to-face. Interesting. Um, so n- now you kind of just painted a picture that that uh, a large chunk of the uh, of general anxiety that students are having is about this new environment, new transition, right? Absolutely. Um, now, now I've also read some articles, seen some things about um, about young people having anxiety about uh, very broad uh, social issues. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, you know, who's president? Mm-hmm. Uh, cli- uh, climate change, um, things that are, and, and again. My concern is that these are these aren't appropriate issues to be anxious about because they're 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 kind of non-actionable. I mean, you, sure, you you can you can you know set a game plan and take steps to to be active in terms of spreading the message of climate change or electing a different president. But mm-hmm. um, do you do you think that uh, do you do you think that the anxiety that's associated with these social issues. I, I don't know if you've encountered it, but do you think do you think that's well placed or? Yeah, it, it definitely sounds like what you're hitting on is something I agree that there's a balance here, um, and especially putting a lot of energy towards things that we don't have a ton of control of. But part of me as a therapist, my job is to really kind of check myself and ask myself, is this just something that I don't personally? you know, feel a lot of anxiety around? Or is this something that clearly, you know, this client, this student that I'm working with, that this is starting to kind of make them feel ungrounded because they're obsessing or just becoming, again, so anxious about it. Um, And it's a tough balance. And that's something where I don't think I know right away. Like when someone starts saying like, oh, and you know, our president did this and that, um, you know, early on, it can feel like, yeah, this is somebody just expressing themselves, their point of view and their stress about it. But when it becomes repetitive and every single time, I absolutely believe there's a balance that, yeah, you can form different political groups and maybe even protest in these things. But ultimately, I think you have to invest in yourself and know what do I have control of? And that's a hard question for me to answer for somebody else. Mm-hmm. Uh, so <clears throat> have you... Um, have you, and have you, so have you encountered any specific clients that have something that, that broad? And if so, I mean, what, what does, you know, I know that therapy is more about developing a relationship. It's not necessarily advice giving, right? Um, but is, is that type of anxiety, do you do you find that you can penetrate and make progress with that? I, I'm thinking of a couple of examples when, yeah, somebody did have a really broad anxiety like that. And I don't feel like I was very effective in penetrating that. And I think it goes back to when people have very rigid beliefs about things that they tend to hold on to them even harder in times of stress. And in both of these instances, 
I had felt that they were holding on to this thing that they really didn't have a lot of influence in changing a broad issue, exactly like you're mentioning. Um, and they felt more comfortable externalized saying, no, the problem is, again, this president versus it's I don't feel control of my life right now. And so it's kind of interesting. We call that externalizing when somebody feels more comfortable, again, pointing fingers in different directions than sort of taking responsibility for the things that are within their realm of control. But I do. I mean, I agree with you that there's like a sensitive balance here because, of course, you want people to express their opinions and um, vote and feel like they can make a difference. But in both these cases that are coming to my mind, I had felt like it had become so over the top that they were starting to neglect their own needs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense. Um, so, I, you know, I, it, it seems that um, it, it seems like anxiety about broad social things, it, it seems like that cannot exist without the omnipresence of social media. Mm-hmm. Um, and so let's talk about that for a second. So w- w- one thing that that um, is an unfortunate byproduct of all of these social media resources that we have floating around is that um, it makes um, social comparisons um, very easy and they're they're literally always there right Mm -hmm. Uh, you know 50 years ago like you might look at your neighbor uh, (laughs) you might talk to your friend you might talk to your friend on the phone right and, and 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 you know you'd go to school yeah. But but those are that's your that is your realm of social comparison. Mm. And when you go home, you have escaped the 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 circle of social comparisons. Now, every time you get home, you have a computer, yeah. you have your phone. Social comparisons are literally everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, do you uh, in your experience, do you feel that uh, that that constant exposure contributes to any sort of the anxiety? I think so. And the first thing that came to my mind as you were talking about that is body image concerns. I can't remember the last time I had a client where if I pressed about that, like, do you feel insecure about your body? Do you find yourself comparing the way you think about your body to other people? In the young students that I work with, it's through the roof, like almost every single one. And I think it relates back to what you're saying, that we're just constantly bombarded through Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, Snapchat, whatever it is, of what the current ideals are for what a man should look like and what a woman should look like. And of course, like we can point to examples that kind of go against this, like, oh, Target using, you know, body positive models and I think that's great steps forward, but it doesn't trump the fact that when you look at who has the most followers, what do these people look like? That young people, like anyone else, is picking up on, okay, what does it mean for this person to have 16 million followers? Why why does this person have this many followers? Yeah, and and what's what's also what what's also interesting about that is um Whereas 50 years ago, these individuals, these role models, mm-hmm. they might have they might have had 
some they, 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 it was likely that they had some sort of skill set right if you if you look at you know you know famous people that that you're comparing it to might be as a professional athlete or an actor you know 50 years ago they they had they had something right they had a they had a skill or something that put them on the map and so there there was some there was some substance to 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 looking up to these figures now you see people that that are that that are are famous for being popular mm-hmm. right if, if you right. know what i mean and <laughs> yeah, and it, it's it's it scares me because i'm you know part of me thinks that young people are just going to decide that their goal in life is not to get good at something it's not to master something like someone that you might see on television mm-hmm. but it's to literally be their 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 modus operandi is to become famous Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's great evidence to show that's exactly what's happening. Because when you think about it, as soon as you get to this threshold that whoever you are, whatever you're doing, when you have millions of followers, you become a marketing company and you can sell whatever. You can become, you know, a brand ambassador for whatever. And so I I agree with you that there's certainly a lot of examples in pop culture where we can pick people and it's hard to understand, okay, what is the skill set here? Besides that, they come from money, they're very attractive, but that's kind of where the list ends. And they're doing things that maybe many young people would like to be doing with the cars, the fashion. Um, But yeah, I I think it's a legitimate concern of what what kind of message does that send about what you should be doing with your life. Now, uh, so from the from the young people that you've talked to, if you had to, you know, if you had to summarize um, what what are some of their um, their their self-developed meanings, like their purposes what what have you seen in terms of like what is what what is driving them what is driving them to do well in school what is driving them to to obtain a, a job i mean you know is it is it uh, i i would hope it's not entirely some sort of shallow thing like i just <laughs> proposed but I, I am curious as to what the actual deeper motivators are for for young people yeah, I, I do feel like I hear the full range. Like okay. I hear, um, again, like I want to make a difference in the world. I want to help people. So, you know, I'm not sure what form that might look like, but I'm considering going to law school or medical school. I definitely hear the things, you know, I just want to make mom and dad proud. I come from a family where I'm a first generation college student. And that means a lot to me to take this opportunity to do the best I can. And then I feel like a lot of college students that come to the door for the college counseling center that's very much an I have no idea. Like they're taking it semester by semester of I'm just trying to find classes that I don't fall asleep in and that I want, <laughs> I want to skip yeah. every day. So yeah. I, I do feel like I hear the full range. It's definitely not I don't feel like these younger generations are vapid in that the things they say to me, I'm like, OK, but, you know, what are you really trying to develop here? Right. Um, so. The uh, so, so we've talked a little bit about anxiety, and um, of course, so in- anxiety is sort of a uh, uh, a uh, 
a problematic form of stress, right? right. We, we, right. So uh, a, lot of, a lot of your treatment uh, treatments involve reducing stress in young people. Um, right. Could you talk you a little know? bit about stress uh, specifically, um, you know, what, could you just give us a quick definition of, of stress perhaps? I, I know you have some YouTube videos uh, yeah, that I'll, yeah. I'll talk about at the end. Uh, uh, I appreciate you, you look up. Uh, yeah, uh, right now it's just my mom watching. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I definitely watched a few. Watched a few of them. Uh, oh, for, so, you and uh, my mom, great. Yeah. <laughs> hey, uh, small. We're a small but very, very proud. Uh, I, uh, love it. I love it. Yours. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah. Because stress is kind of a. a it's generally it's a pretty vague term. So could you yeah. talk about what, what, what you think of when we talk about stress? Yeah, so it's a, exactly like you're setting this up. Stress is a normal occurrence day to day. And stress definitely isn't always a bad thing. Uh, when we think about stress, we want to think about having the right amount of stress. And a good way to think about that is if you've ever worked a crappy part-time job and you felt no motivation to go to that whatsoever. You just didn't care. That's a perfect example of not enough stress. You didn't feel heightened enough, motivated enough to put energy into this thing because maybe you thought, oh, this doesn't have anything to do with my future. I don't really care about the tasks I'm doing here. Um, but that's almost not enough stress. But right. then it's like run- that's, you're almost getting into ap- like apathy. Apathy. Right? So, yeah. Who gives yeah. a crap? Yeah, that's exactly what that is. Um, but in the middle lies the right amount of stress, a job that where you care about, maybe you have certain goals that you want to make, maybe it helps you grow. The same is true, you could use a class as an example. Maybe it challenges you, the tests are tough, you have to study, you have to learn the material. Um, but too much stress, it, it again, is us activating this fight or flight system and releasing cortisol into our bloodstream too often where we're just becoming way too aroused too many times throughout the day. And again, for a lot of young people, it's not having outlets for this stress. So they pull all-nighters, they're drinking a lot of energy drinks, they're going from class to class, sometimes to work, and there's not enough regulating activities to pull them back to balance. Yeah, I, I'd like to underscore that, that point about good and bad stress, right? Stress is, it, it, it's an evolved response to threats, right? Absolutely. Uh, and the whole point of this response is to prime our bodies for uh, specific, specific type, types of, of behaviors. Now, the, of course, the problem, the big problem is that um, th- this stress response, this release of cortisol was formed in a complete, completely different <laughs> world with a completely different set of challenges, right? This was, That's right. Uh, these are, you know, the stress response was, you know, oh crap tiger or, uh, or uh, we are vulnerable to attack, right? This is all right. the pre-human and early human uh, uh, situations. So, it, it, you know, when you bring that, that primitive stress response into our modern world, uh, it's going to go off, but it's going to go off for for completely different set of behaviors. It's going to go off for oh crap, my assignment is due, mm-hmm. and 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 or uh, you know I'm 
I have a date coming up. Uh, you know, this is all stress. Oh, this is driving me crazy. So if, um, so how do we, uh, how do we structure a, a, a good life? Um, if, you know, if we're trying to align ourselves with these, this kind of ancient wiring. I think, and this is not something that I feel like we're taught a lot, but I think you have to start paying attention to your own body stress signals. And this is something where, again, in our on-the-go kind of level up, hectic life, I don't think many of us pause often to ask ourselves, how have I been feeling lately? And because stress can manifest within the body, emotionally, cognitively, in a lot of different ways, which I do have a great video on. (laughs) (laughs) But because of this, I don't know for a lot of us if we're taught, okay, this is my body or this is my emotional expression of stress. And if I'm repetitively day after day, you know, hitting these certain thresholds, this means something has to change. Not, okay, I need to drink another Red Bull and tough it out but I actually need to switch up my behaviors and again, find a better balance. So yeah, we're, we're, we're transitioning very nicely into uh, your specific treatment modality, but um, yeah, I wanted to, to, to comment on that, that, you know, it is so easy to go through life on autopilot where day to day, you don't, you're not really paying attention to your body. It's literally just what is next, what is next. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of my favorite quotes is um, that you are not your thoughts, right? right. Everyone, can, by default, we just mm-hmm. think that when I have a little, you know, a little a spot of inspiration, like, oh, I'm hungry. Oh, I'm going to go eat. Or, mm-hmm. hey, that guy, that guy called me a name. I'm going to tell him to F off. F off. Right. You know, like, <laughs> we just, we just by default think that whatever pops in our head is who we are. And that just goes out. Um, right. And all that is influenced by whether we're hungry, we're mm-hmm. tired. All of that is, is, is playing a role. Um, so, you uh, t- like to focus on uh, mindfulness uh, as a as a method of dealing uh, with stress and this constant uh, stream of consciousness. Talk a little bit about mindfulness for uh, for us. Yeah, mindfulness is a practice that dates back uh, into Buddhism. It's over two thousand years old, but. Starting in the early 80s, it was brought into Western medicine by a guy named John Kabat-Zinn, where he basically studied under the Zen master and realized, wow, like these mindfulness techniques, I think this could help a lot of people out. Um, And since the 80s, it's really grown in psychology specifically as a way for us to start paying attention to our thoughts, to our body, to the moment what is happening in this exact moment? Because you set that up perfectly. We spend so much time, especially when we're stressed, just drifting away in these thoughts. The perfect example of that is we've all had the experience where you drive somewhere and you just end up there. And you're like, you know, I know I drove the vehicle, but I don't have awareness or really remember much of the ride. What we know taking that example is when people have chronic stress, That's exactly what they're experiencing. I'm not actually remembering much of the ride because I'm so stuck in this worried, anxiety, stress-filled cognitive state. But 
Mindfulness is doing a bunch of specific uh, activities that pull us and focus on the present. Yeah, and, and it's funny because uh, I think a lot of people um, will misinterpret that that stress as I'm ex- exhausted, but it, right. you could, when you're doing something that you're passionate about for six hours, mm-hmm. you might you might feel exhausted, but it's a different, it's a completely it's a com- completely different type of exhaustion, right? Right. It, it's not a, it's not even an energy level thing because mm-hmm. you could do that passionate activity. You know, if you're if you're into volunteering and you go volunteer for four hours, you could be on your feet the whole time, Old and day. then you, you you might have a little you might have a little pep in your step when right. when you leave. But right. you take two hours of something you hate doing. Uh, yeah, I'm exa- oh, I'm exhausted. Oh, it's like, but you're not right. Yeah. You're not really exhausted. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's something we have people pay attention to when they start practicing mindfulness is the difference between nourishing and depleting activities, right? Because exactly what you're describing, when we're doing an activity, no matter how many hours we're doing, if it's nourishing, again, yes, six, eight hours, we'll feel excited. We'll feel upbeat. Um, But when something's depleting, it doesn't have to be very long that Again, after an hour or so, we might just feel like, oh, man, I need a nap. I feel like, again, I need to just reset everything. But unfortunately, I do feel like our culture is one that's like, ignore all those signals, put your head down, keep working hard. And again, it's all going to get better with you just continuously grinding. Yeah, I I have. I've worked in both relaxed academic atmospheres and and sort of the intense corporate ones and and yeah i mean uh there is a there there is a um it is it is emotionally draining to do something for a long time that you don't really want to be doing or that you're not inspired or passionate about and and uh yeah i it, it is tough um did, did you feel like during that time that you were able to like find other things to ground and reset or does just that experience of going to a job that, again, that wasn't nourishing you too draining? Uh, so in my specific example, um, it was um, I was just I was doing some I was do, working for a company doing analytics and yeah. uh, it was it was all encompassing. It was not a, I'm going to go home and work out and I'll feel great, or I'm going to hang out with some friends and, and that'll balance me out. Right. It was the, it was the eight hours just trumped everything else. I only had energy to, to come home and, and kind of veg out. And, and that was ultimately what led me to, to change my profession. Mm-hmm. Um, as now I'm back teaching again. Yeah. Uh, it's, it, it was, it was all encompassing. Yeah. And I, I immediately felt the stress lift off as soon as I started my, my, my new role back in, in academia. Yeah. And I think I just to echo that and champion that, I think that's an awesome example because something in there had told you like enough is enough where again, I feel like a lot of the message we get in the mainstream culture is no, you're probably just not pushing hard enough. That well, you, yeah, that's 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 definitely the case, and and even more so. So, uh, 
it, what what you just reminded me of was that you know it it was very difficult i spent a lot of time thinking about making this transition but ultimately i i pulled a trigger and what i've what, in, in my experience when i find people that are uh, experiencing too much stress in, in a job particularly one that they don't like mm. is that they there's a lack of action and it's fascinating mm. to me because you could lay out on a silver platter the reasons why they should leave the job and 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 and, and they'll actually agree with it yeah yeah i should i should leave the job mm-hmm. but th- but they won't why why do you think why do you think when 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 people are presented with with an obvious problem in their life that they that they're not willing to act. What is the difference between acting and not acting in your view? I, I would say, Ryan, you're the ideal client. <laughs> anytime, <laughs> anytime we get a client or I get a client who's risk averse, there's someone who's able to take a risk and kind of adapt from there. Um, and they're in what we'd call an action stage, which means they're willing to try something out, see how it goes, and adapt going further. Um, that's always a beautiful place when a client comes in. I feel like that's actually not the norm. Most people who come into therapy, we'd consider them thinking of the stages of therapy in either pre-contemplative, meaning they're not really aware of the problem, or they're contemplative where they're aware of the problem, but they haven't really thought through what the steps would be to fix it, or they don't really feel that interested in it yet. Well, uh, I'll keep that in mind if, uh, if, <laughs> if I do decide to, to, uh, to look, look for a therapist. I don't currently have a therapist, but I'll add you to my, uh, my, uh, my list of potentials. <laughs> that would be a conflict of interest but, that I, I greatly appreciate. But I, 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 it would pad your numbers. It'd make, oh, like, it, oh yes. wow, look at, look at this, look at this guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I that. But no, I, I feel like um, that that kind of is the essence of therapy is not necessarily telling people um, what they should do, because most people know what they should do. It's figuring out what are the reasons why they're not able to proceed. And those those reasons are vast from fears to lack of confidence, lack of self-esteem, um, you know, just not having good planning skills. But Again, it's always refreshing when you have a client who's willing to take a risk and will process with you afterwards what that adjustment's been like. So I, I want to come back to, uh, to, to some of the other things that you encounter in the therapeutic set, uh, sessions. Uh, but but let's, let's talk a little bit more. I want to stay on the mindfulness a little bit more. So what... Um, what are um, what are your your goals for uh, recommending uh, mindfulness uh, in in terms of as a as a coping mechanism? Yeah, I think, and I appreciate you framing it that way because I know whether you're a psychologist or somebody out there, you can start trumpeting whatever you really believe in as the way. And I definitely don't feel like mindfulness is the way. I do feel like it's a way. Um, but I, I feel like a lot of people have a lot of negative connotations around meditation. And what I most often hear is people kind of saying, oh, I've, I've tried that once and it wasn't for me. I just thought the whole time and I couldn't clear my mind. 
And uh, I feel like that's such a heartbreak for me because they haven't been handed the right frame. Um, and that's mindfulness is just like exercise. Like when you go exercise, each time you exercise, you feel very different, right? Like some days when I'm like, it's late at night and I'm like, oh, I should really go for a good walk, you know, with my dogs. But sometimes I feel like crap, you know what I mean? I'm like tired and I'm sluggish, but it's still, exercise is still good for me. And meditation and mindfulness is the same way. Each time you go do it, you might experience something totally different. Like you might be drifting off a lot. Sometimes I am thinking about stuff, planning out the rest of my life. But when you have those gaps, those moments where you're just focused on whatever you're trying to focus on, the breath, sensations in the body, smells, sound, those gaps of just being present, what we know are great for your mental health. Yeah, I, uh, un unfortunately, I'm going to have to disagree with you because I've, I've tried exercise once. It, did, it, <laughs> just, it didn't work for me, so I've, I've moved uh, on. I appreciate the advice for on this exercise that you talk about. So, yeah, I, um, so I've actually, I'm a, I would consider myself a, no, a, a novice to, to mm -hmm. mindfulness practice, and um, I, I'll let you... Uh, recommend anyone if you want, but I, I've been following Sam Harris's Waking Up program, which is an intro, um, is a, a daily uh, guided uh, mindfulness meditation. Yeah. And um, yeah, it, 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 it will take practice, right? I, there aren't, you're not, this isn't a, a pill. This is a, it's a practice, right? And I, I, at least I, I, speaking for myself, the benefit has been, um, the the paying mind to that gap between incoming information on a, a, during your day and acting or behaving saying something mm -hmm. there there's a there's a little gap there that is so important it's what you do in between someone cutting you off do you do you honk do you run them off the road you don't mm -hmm. You don't want to do any of that. There's that little little window that I think mindfulness can can help with. Um, mm -hmm. Is could you could you talk a little bit about um, about you know is 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 that part of the the model of mindfulness is to slow down slow down your thoughts and and because uh, I know there's the physical element, but mm -hmm. is it also filtering thoughts? I, absolutely. And I think that's very much the practice is whatever we're noticing, whatever change, that's a great example of someone cutting you off in traffic. When you're in a mindful state, you can notice the changes that are going on. Oh, I'm feeling pissed off. I'm noticing I tightened the grip on the steering wheel. I'm starting to hold my breath. I'm having the thought of who would dare cut me off in traffic, you know, but you can notice all these things arising and choose a path instead of just being reactive. And I think this is one of the first things people feel in that gap is this sense of sort of uh, like you're putting your hand back on the remote control, like your thoughts aren't controlling you anymore. Having emotion isn't controlling you anymore. You can notice I'm having this thought. Uh, of who dare cut me off, but I can let that pass. Or I'm feeling really angry in this moment and 
do I have to act on it right now? But that's a beautiful thing to experience those gaps and just notice what is instead of what you had described before of anything you feel, anything you think, well, that's the truth and I have to act on it right now. Yeah, I I would hope that, um, you know, so obviously mindfulness is hard to study, right? Because mm. it's kind of hard to have a, uh, a, a a blind control group for studying mindfulness. That's right. One of the issues with it. Um, I hope that it's not um, the case that that people that already have good self control are benefiting from these things. Um, you know how how is mindfulness different from more traditional approaches to uh, impulse control. I mean, is it, is it, does it fall in line with, you know, the, the anger management programs that you used to hear about? Does it fall in line with, um, with, with, you know, the, the, the more traditional U S based psychological approaches to handling impulse control? I think the only thing that really overlaps there is trying to create a pause, but I think mindfulness practices more specifically have you focusing for extended periods of time on just one thing. And again, showing you that you can actually focus and keep your attention held in a place and start having this experience of noticing thoughts change and drift by, feelings change and drift by, body sensations change and drift by, um, and that you're noticing again your changing weather. And that's really, again, what you do when you practice mindfulness is you're zooming in on one thing and just noticing kind of this dialogue that's coming up. You don't have to do anything about it, which I know a lot of kind of traditional ways to uh, change impulse control or anger management is you have to do this thing. You have to count to seven and it's more of like more action oriented instead of again, feeling like, no, when you cultivate mindfulness, it's just about the noticing. You're just noticing what's arising. So feeling, no, I'm in doing mode. You're in more in being mode for mindfulness. That, yeah, that, that, that makes sense. Um, now, uh, now, obviously, I'm a I'm a huge fan of, of mindfulness. I'm willing to incorporate it into my life. But let, <laughs> let me let me ask you something, because I here's one of my concerns about mm. the, the, tr the trend towards mindfulness. Um, so it seems on the surface that uh, mindfulness would be most effective if you are a competent human being who can make and achieve goals. So you, you have the ability to go out and work, work a full day and contribute and you know, you're just stressed out. Uh, you can, you know, you can go to your job and, and have meetings. You can, uh, you can go to, um, you can work as a bartender or a server. You know, you can, you're, you you have the ability to act and, and, mm -hmm. and you're self-sufficient. It seems like it'd be particularly helpful there. Mm -hmm. Do you, do you think that it's also effective if you, you don't have that? So what, what I'm thinking of is, if, if you're a young person who, let's, you know, a college age individual mm -hmm. who is sort of anxious about everything they're mm -hmm. 
they're 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 a, a fra- think of like a fragile uh, a fragile person who has trouble making and achieving goals. Do you think that mindfulness is the first course of action versus something that's more uh, that that will make uh, somebody more resilient, like you know, uh, t- treatments that would make them that would build up their resilience or their grit versus making them uh, better at dealing with stress? You know, I, I know, and it's like a typical therapist response of it kind of depends, but I feel like. In my mind, if somebody's anxiety and stress is sort of the predominant thing that's sweeping them away from being able to, you know, build certain skills or resiliency, then starting with mindfulness isn't going to set you back by any means because them learning to regulate themselves, learning to slow down, learning to pay attention, you know, uh, be less reactive um, is going to be helpful, but for sure, you're going to have to be incorporating, you know, skill building, especially again, the, the students that come to mind for me is, um, students that are really lacking in their social skills. Um, and it might not necessarily be because of social anxiety, but the ways they communicate, the ways they interact with people are very indirect and have a low probability of forming close relationships. So, I think mindfulness can be a part of that equation, but I agree with you that it's definitely not going to be a standalone treatment if somebody's really lacking other skills that, again, they're needing to navigate the world. Yeah, I think sometimes as, you know, as you know, my background is in research. Sometimes as somebody who's not a practitioner, you kind of forget that you have to take these multi-pronged approaches. It's not just uh, one modality or the other. You know, right. I think that that's that's something that I think a lot of people default to. It's like, well, what do you prefer, this or this, or you know, see yeah. cognitive behavioral therapy or mindfulness? Like, oh, I prefer, right? It, it, it I guess it is more of a, uh, you know, like you said, it, it depends, and it might be a, a, a bunch of different tactics. It, and that's much more the norm, exactly like you said, of what real therapy looks like. And I think the thing that gets pushed on the public often is cognitive behavioral therapy. And if you ask any therapist about that, you know, someone in the public, they've been told by an MD or someone else that they need cognitive behavioral therapy. And they'll ask, you know, such therapists, do you do cognitive behavioral therapy? Almost every therapist is going to be like, yes, part of my therapy is going to be cognitive and involve you changing your behaviors. Mm -hmm. But the reality between therapists, um, how much you stick to kind of CBT protocol and how that looks like out of the textbook and what it actually looks like in real therapy are completely different, which makes, you know, studying therapy and therapeutic uh, protocol really interesting. So let's let's stay on that for just one second. So, you know, what are you've been practicing or you've been seeing clients for seven plus years? Yeah. Um, what what is the biggest difference between uh, what what you had what you've learned in training versus what it's like to actually see clients? Yeah, I mean, a lot. And so I think that (laughs) (laughs) it's just such a succinct response, right? A lot. But I remember reading Judith Beck's uh, CBT book and thinking, it's this simple. If I just highlight someone's automatic thought and drill down to the core belief, all is well. 
But in reality, the way things play out in therapy is, yes, that is the overarching map of how you're going to start using CBT. But what it looks like with people's defenses, with people's, again, lack of skills, with people's, you know, diversity and different cultures that they come from, it looks so different. So I, I guess the simplest way for me to explain it is it's like a baking recipe where you end up using all the same ingredients, but each person needs a different amount of the different ingredients. Like one person, everybody takes sugar, baking powder, vanilla, and this, and yeah, everybody's gonna get some of that, but how much each person gets is so different, which makes it a really interesting profession, but also a really subjective one. Yes. Now, do you do you practice gluten-free therapy? <laughs> I'm I, completely I vegan, gluten-free. <laughs> I stay with the trends for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah the um, uh, as a lay person, it always I always thought that therapy was involved um, the the therapist kind of intervening in bad thoughts, and then you kind of realize that it's a lot more important to just build a solid relationship. It, it is, it's not so much advice. It's more, uh, you, you know, one brain connecting with another brain to help it understand what a good relationship is. Um, does, so you had mentioned that, that, uh, uh, that re relationships are also a, 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 a one of the things that your clients will come to talk to you about. Uh, what are some of the relationship, whether it's, I, I mean, is it, I assume it's going to be more intimate relationships and friendships, or you get a little bit of both? You, you do get a little bit of both, especially roommate issues. Oh, those, those are my favorite. Because for most people, Again, especially working at a university like Florida Atlantic University, where I spent a long amount of time, uh, this is for a lot of them the first time they're sharing space and they're negotiating how do we use this space, how do we have you know sleep routines, all this stuff. But yeah, a lot of roommate dynamics of again, how do I communicate in an open, assertive way instead of just avoiding and saying they did this thing, I'm going to cut them out of my life, I'm blocking them. Uh, those are kind of my favorite to negotiate because it's not so easy to get rid of a roommate. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 from from firsthand experience. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, you know, the there, you know, you, if you take a, a, you know four, five, eighteen year olds and you you put them in a room where they've probably never had to communicate their needs to anyone in their life, you get right. You get some a little bit of friction, right? Yeah, it's an uh, interesting experiment we set them up for, right? Because I, I don't I don't think there's a lot of prep for this. Of this might be the first time that you're going to be very assertive with your needs and have someone look at you very confused because that doesn't fit, again, what they're wanting their bedtime, you know, routine to look like. So uh, what are some of the, the, the ways that you encourage people to deal with their roommates? Uh, what are the, what do you need to pay attention to when you're communicating to a roommate? Yeah, yeah. So I, one of the biggest things is just encouraging them to turn towards them. And so there's this, 
common pull, and I I have no evidence to know it's because of social media, but there's this common pull to be like, I'm I'm gonna come talk to you about that and tell you, my therapist, how much I hate it, but I'm not gonna talk to them. Like that's usually the biggest thing of, oh no, if you want anything to change, you are going to talk to them. And yeah, gonna, and it's like yeah. that with with the uh, intimate relationships Absolutely. too. It's it's so unfortunate, you know. You hear, I I I, I mean, you know, people think that if you're a, a social psychologist, that means that you can answer their therapeutic questions. But you know, I can't count the number of times where. Uh, someone has brought an issue uh, and you know first question have you talked to them about it well no yeah. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's it's pr- pretty pretty shocking so uh, okay so uh, addressing it with their roommate is 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 definitely something that you need to be clear about with them yeah absolutely and it's that step is a really difficult one like i can't tell you how many times i've had shocked looks that that's what i'm highly recommending because them just complaining to me isn't ever going to build up how do you become vulnerable with another person in an assertive way and say hey when you did this you know i felt sad or i felt like you know this space wasn't safe for me anymore um there's certain assumptions that people feel like if i become vulnerable with this person they're gonna shape it into a spear and always use it against me and while I get, yeah, being vulnerable is risky, it is, like you're alluding to, in a romantic relationship, in a friendship, in a good roommate environment, it is the only way we cultivate something that's healthy and happy and we look forward to. Yeah. Um, so um, as we wrap up, I, I do want to talk about one more thing. The mm-hmm. um, uh, the course I'm teaching, um, we talk a lot about... Uh, we talk a lot about the concept of play, right? Uh, so <clears throat> just sort of this, perp- you know, just a quick guideline for play. It's, you know, it's purposeless, it's fun, it's physical, it's you know, active. There's potential for improvisation. Um, there, the, the, um, uh, the, the name of the, the book that uh, we, we use for the course is called Play by uh, Stuart Brown, mm-hmm. um, and you know he, he postulates that uh, that you know play is 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 underestimated in terms of its contribution to well-being, mm. um, is specifically with stress reduction, specifically with um, with anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, do you uh, you had me- you'd mentioned or I, I believe um, in your bio you you had mentioned that that you incorporate some yoga uh, into your practice a little bit. Could you talk about the role of physicality and and, and how that might, uh, how, how, how does that, uh, how do you recommend that to somebody to incorporate in their life to reduce stress? Yeah, the, we know there's such a huge relationship between being active and physical and reducing the amount of cortisol in the blood. Um, I think it's essential, whether I'm meeting with somebody and they're presenting with anxiety, depression, that's always one of the first things I'll ask when I'm doing a biopsychosocial is how much movement, physical movement do you have in your life? And I really want to know, okay, what did yesterday look like? Like, how were you active? And because I want to know, is this person who's moving from seated in the car to seated on the couch to 
Uh, again, all these sort of rigid postures, which we know for human beings, we haven't evolved this way. Our body is designed to move. And there's good research, especially with just comparing yoga to psychotherapy, that yoga is very close to being as effective. And I think that's awesome. And I think that's great. And it it says something to the effect of how stagnant uh, we can become under stress or just in the ways our jobs are shaping of us just sitting over a computer for long hours. Um, students will, that's their favorite part of the mindfulness stress reduction course. At the end of the semester, I always ask, what was the thing you enjoyed the most? It's always yoga. Yoga always wins. Because I think for a lot of people, this is their one time throughout the day that they, they got to move around their body and kind of wake themselves up instead of holding these same kind of leaned over a computer or cell phone postures. Yeah. Well, I think you, you summed up the uh, the episode with my, it's going to be my favorite quote, yoga always wins. <laughs> uh, that's going to be, uh, that's definitely going to be my, my my favorite quote of the episode. Namaste um, that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, I'm going to wrap it up. The um, If you want to uh, see more of, of Justin, check out his uh, YouTube channel, which is A Modern Therapist. Just go to YouTube, type in A Modern Therapist, you'll see videos on uh, stress reduction and mindfulness and all kinds of other uh, good stuff. So uh, I want to thank you very much for being on. I appreciate it. Of course. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Anytime. For more on Justin, head over to Instagram or TikTok and type in at a modern therapist. Once again, that's at a modern therapist. And while you're on Instagram, follow this podcast at why do we do that podcast. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. Follow our Facebook page for episode updates and additional content. You can also head over to Twitter and follow us at WDWDTPod on Twitter. Also, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel uh, or email me at why do we do that podcast at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Dr. Ryan Moyer, hoping you found some answers to the question, why do we do that? Mm-hmm.